everybody. Welcome to Pivot and Thrive. It is September 2nd, Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. This is your host, Kim Shea. I'm a certified retirement coach. And today I am speaking to a friend of mine, and he has a lot of really wonderful experience in his retirement. That's why I wanted to introduce him to you. And his name is Ron Hoffman. And Ron, we met because our kids are friends from high school. So welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Tell me about your background. What did you do before you retired, I guess, the first time? Would that be correct to say you retired once from a career that you'd had before you met? No. No? Okay. That's in- incorrect. Okay. Um, but uh, as a matter of fact, uh, pivot and strive, I think, applies to me throughout most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I... I'm now in my ninth first year, so uh, <laughs> you're thriving. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's it, <clears throat> well. I don't know whether it's thrive or strive. Uh, probably doesn't matter um, too much in my case. I guess I'm a striver. I guess that's why I'm a pivoter. So <laughs> <laughs> not sure which comes first. <laughs> I guess I would say that um, in a sense. I'm a light bloomer, uh, no, late bloomer, uh, in, in, in the sense that I started um, a number of things relatively late in life, that is, relative to others who are in similar circumstances. Okay. Uh, for example, um, I uh, graduated from high school uh, when I was just 17, and um, my main interest um, uh, from the time I was about seven until I was 17 was, uh, playing baseball. Oh, and, okay. uh, and I, uh, uh, really wanted to do that more than anything else. And so, um, uh, when I started, uh, college, uh, that was my main intention. And, uh, baseball is a sport that's played in college. Uh, in the spring semester, which is the second semester. And in between the first and second semesters, uh, we have a little vacation. During that vacation, I was playing uh, in a pickup basketball game, an outdoor court, and I uh, tore up my right ankle. Oh. And in those days, uh, this was uh, 1948, in those days, uh, two things were true, at least for people in my circumstances. One was that with an ankle like that, they just put you in a cast for six or eight weeks. can't remember which. And um, and then after six or eight weeks, they cut the cast off, and that's it. Uh, nobody knew anything at all about rehab. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, that cost me uh, uh, the opportunity to play uh, freshman baseball. I was at UCLA. In those days, uh, freshmen had to play um, on a freshman team. And uh, so uh, then the next year, uh, during the fall semester, my second year of college, uh, I um, picked up a very severe case of the mumps, 
and uh, 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 that disabled me uh, for a while uh, because one of my testicles uh, became, I guess, it's infected. I'm not sure what the what the appropriate uh, term is, but in any case, uh, uh, that sometimes happens uh, with males of my age, uh, at least at that time, mm-hmm. uh, who get them up. So uh, uh, I had to drop uh, all that I think about six units uh, that I was taking wow. in, in order to pass something. Uh, but then I was okay, and uh, and so in my second semester, second year, I uh, uh, went out for the varsity baseball team, and uh, I made the team, and uh, played in some preseason games. Uh, at that time, I can't remember what what the conference was called. It wasn't the Pac-10. Um, but whatever it was called, they had a rule that said, if you um, had not completed 24 units, um, I think it was 24. I can't remember now. But in any case, if you hadn't completed a certain number of academic units, you weren't eligible to play a varsity sport. Oh, man. And so when the list came out, and I remember, um, you know, uh, uh, the people who had made the team were photographed. Um, we put on a, a uh, brewing jersey and a hat, and they take your picture and all. I'd gone through that. The list came out, and I was ineligible. And that had uh, a great impact on me Mm. uh, for several reasons. One uh, is that the most important thing to me at that time was to play baseball. And secondly, uh, I had no real interest in college at all. Oh, okay. And uh, if, uh, if anyone were to ask me, why are you here? I would say, well, um, I, uh, I thought, uh, for safety's sake, I should get a college degree. And the reason I put it that way is that I had, um, uh, for a couple of years, uh, been playing on what today I guess would be called a travel team. And, uh, the travel team that I played on uh, was uh, was managed by a guy by the name of Charlie Barnett, same name as uh, as an old band leader. And Charlie was a seasoned old Texan uh, who'd been with the Red Sox organization for a long time. And uh, the Red Sox uh, organization uh, financed the team that I played on. We had uh, our uniforms uh, were old, <laughs> used, uh, 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 gray 
Red Sox uniforms, you know, the ones that oh. the team went, you know, wears when they're not playing at all. Yeah. And uh, so in any event, uh, they, at that time, uh, minor leagues went all the way down to uh, Class D. And uh, Charlie uh, uh, told me that the Red Sox would pick me up for their Class D team in El Paso, Texas, if I wanted to go. Wow. And I think at that time, the pay was like, I think it was, I think it was $150 a month. I, I can't really remember. What I do remember is that uh, about that time, during the vacations, I worked um, in uh, construction. And uh, I was lucky enough to get into the International Odd Carriers and Laborers Union. And I was a laborer, and I got paid a buck and a half an hour. And a buck and a half an hour, 40 hours, that's 60 bucks a week. Uh, that's uh, $240 roughly uh, a month. And uh, so maybe it was $250 a month that they would pay. I remember it was pretty close to... Uh, what I would earn if I was a laborer. And somehow that, that stuck in my mind, and I said, well, you know, to be safe, I better go to college. So I did go to college, um, but it turned out not for long. Um, so I, um, after, after it was determined that I was ineligible, um, uh, there were two other things that, that that were important in my life at the time. Number one, I didn't have a girlfriend. And for another, uh, I was not getting along too well at home. And then, uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, and now we're talking about... Uh, uh, the end of 1950. Um, the end of 1950, uh, the Korean War began to expand. And um, in fact, uh, the draft uh, uh, accelerated. And I knew that I didn't want to get drafted. And I was not too intent on staying in school. And uh, I had uh, a uh, ne'er-do-well uncle who had served in the U.S. Navy uh, during World War II. And uh, I stupidly listened to what he told me, uh, which was join the Navy. So I did. And I spent four years in the Navy. And so when I got out, it was January of 1955, and I went back to college with a different viewpoint than the first time around. Okay. Um, but I was older uh, than most people in my circle. In any event, um, well, that's what I did, and um, and I graduated uh, 
from college and uh, from UCLA and wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And uh, the reason I'm giving you all this detail, which you probably will need to edit out. No, no, <laughs> I won't. It's very interesting. Because, because I think it does relate to uh, uh, the title of the podcast. Pivot and Thrive? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so, so I... Um, uh, I actually, uh, I graduated with an accounting major, and um, at that time, uh, at least at UCLA, um, the there, there were there were at that time there were eight major accounting firms in the U.S. Really, uh, that's not true any longer, uh, but um, but they would come and recruit and. Uh, I was offered and actually accepted a job with one of them and then thought better of it and decided I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to leave school or do something else. I had got married before I graduated and actually, uh, my wife at that time and I were both students at UCLA. Hmm. And, uh, and so I graduated and uh, I contemplated staying at school to do something else, but I wasn't sure what, what the something else might be. Hmm. So I, um, I applied to the UCLA Law School, which at that time was just beginning. Uh, you could go back and check, but uh, this was uh, this was 1956, I think. Mm. Um, something like that. 55, 56. Uh, and I was accepted at the law school. Nice. Um, but I decided I didn't want to go. I also um, applied uh, to the UCLA philosophy department, and uh, and uh, into their graduate program, and I was accepted there. Um, but I, I actually turned that down too. The w- the way that happened was. Um, the way it happened that I got interested in philosophy, uh, well, two things were true now that I'm remembering. You're, you're just hearing all of this reminiscence. It's very which, interesting. Um, uh, nobody else would be interested. Oh, you'd be surprised. In any case, <laughs> I had a, had a very good friend named John Saunders. John and I were friends in high school. John is a couple of years older than I was, and John uh, uh, proceeded through high school into college and into graduate school and had a PhD in philosophy and was teaching philosophy. I think at uh, 
at Northridge, if I'm not mistaken. In any event, um, we were talking, and he said, why don't you take a philosophy class? So I took a philosophy class, and um, and it was taught by Donald Taylor. I didn't know him as an anti-war activist. I only knew him as a physician. And uh, I took his class, and uh, I really liked it. And he seemed to like me, mm. which, which, which was um, uh, the fact that he liked me had an effect on me. The reason that he liked me is that I had written a couple of exams for him. And I remember he wrote on one of them, you have real promise. Nice. He was kind of young. Let's see. Um, born, let's say he was born in 20, not 19. Mm-hmm. So uh, in 1965, uh, he was 35. So I knew him. I knew him when he was not yet 40. And I knew him as a really fine teacher uh, of a rather technical discipline. And also a guy who really liked girls. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he was really very charming. Okay. Uh, I am told. <laughs> and and uh, so anyhow, um, uh, but I didn't follow through uh, with the philosophy department. Hmm. Uh, I seen a I seen a uh, an ad uh, at the at, at UCLA. You know, they have a placement. That time they had a placement uh, uh, department, and there was an ad to go to work as a, an A and R person for a record store, and uh, that looked intriguing to me. But uh, I didn't think that either, which is a good thing, apparently, because in those days that business was really like. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, uh, and, and I, you know, it was uh, knee deep, if not chin deep in drugs. But in any case, um, I had a, another, I had a professor uh, who uh, gave me a job during the summer. Uh, he was, uh, writing a book uh, about uh, the Southern California tuna industry, hmm. which was quite an industry at that time. And uh, he knew a guy who uh, who was uh, the head of a, a boutique tuna cannery in Terminal Island. And the guy uh, He's an unusual guy. Uh, 
actually, his last name was De Silva, and uh, he died a number of years ago. I think he eventually wound up living in dying in Rancho Santa Fe. Um, mm. uh, his wife um, was the daughter of a man who had a uh, majority interest in a cannery, this petite cannery called South Coast Fishery. And uh, he, uh, Silva, had been educated at the University of Chicago. So, you know, he brought with him um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of polish. Let's just use that word uh, that you usually wouldn't find <laughs> in a tunic cannery on Terminal Island. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. So anyhow, um, he said, look, why don't you go talk to this guy, see what he's got in mind. So I did, and we hit it off, and and, uh, and he hired me as his assistant. And uh, that was a good job because uh, it had no... Uh, no real limitations. Um, you know, he he would ask me to do X, and and I would do X. Uh, or he didn't ask me uh, to do X, and uh, I would tell him I think it's a good idea if I did X, and he would, you know, pretty much say okay. So anyhow. Um, I stayed there for about a year and a half. What happened was, and all of this is leading up to how I have to go to graduate school and get a PhD in economics, in oh. case you're wondering why this uh, meandering keeps going. Well, so, no, it's all your history, so it all makes sense. It's just, I didn't edit, this is all interesting, believe me. So, um, this is... Uh, this now is the late 50s, and uh, at that time, uh, there was uh, a lot of competition uh, in the tuna industry, both with respect to the canned product um, and the raw product. A lot of that competition came from Japan. And, uh, and at that time, um, the local tuna fishery was um, uh, the purview of, uh, of, of, of Italians, basically Italian and, uh, and Yugoslavia. At that time, there was a Yugoslavia. And, uh, you know, the immigrants uh, came. Uh, these were people who knew about fishing. They started to fish these waters many years ago. They owned the boat. And uh, these are interesting people. Uh, they were tough. Uh, they were accustomed to really hard, dirty work. And they were accustomed to making really good money. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, you could go around from Rhode Island and see them driving around their Cadillac. Um, 
but there was a lot of competition uh, from Japan. Uh, they would uh, they would fish the tuna and uh, ship into the U.S. what were called tuna logs, frozen tuna, and the frozen tuna was sold in the canneries, and the canneries would then can that product, and the competition was between the imported tuna, the logs, and the um, and the uh, fish that were caught by the local fishermen. In addition to that, there was competition uh, for the canned product. The Japanese were sending canned tuna in also. Okay. And as a result, um, the um, issues arose in um, in Washington D.C. and the Tariff Commission eventually got that um, got that issue uh, on their desk, and uh, they sent around a uh, a request for comment about certain proposals that were made uh, uh, with respect to the uh, the various contending interests. Of course, um, consumers who like to eat tuna would uh, prefer that uh, the tuna come at the lowest price and the fishermen would like the highest price, and um, and the canners like to buy it at the lowest price and sell the canned tuna at the highest price. So there are a lot of contending interests and showed up in this uh, request for comments, and the silver gave me the job of responding hmm. for our company. And I knew what I had to say, and I said it. And then I went back to the professor who had sent me down there, Tom Pettit, and I said, Tom, um, you know, here's what I wrote. Uh, I don't believe a word of it. He said, well, in that case, you better go get a PhD in economics and do some real work. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, uh, I'd been married. Uh, you, I don't think you ever met Cal, my older son. No. Uh, Cal was born in, um, in 1957. And, uh, so, uh, I went back, I went back to UCLA. I didn't know anything about economics, so I took a couple of economics classes and some math. Uh, in order to be prepared to go to graduate school. And uh, my wife and and Cal and, and I, uh, we moved into Veterans Housing, 616 Daily, right across the street from Fernie Road. And these were uh, these two-story temporary buildings People who lived in the neighborhood didn't like them much, referred to them as shacks. They were shacks, 
They were temporary when they were moved off the uh, military reservation <laughs> and then put there uh, at UCLA to house those veterans. But, um, you know, the rent, I remember, was uh, uh, $29 a month for unfurnished, $33 a month for furnished. Wow. Uh, it was better to get unfurnished, not because the price was lower only, uh, but because then you wouldn't have to find a way to get rid of the furniture that was in the place that <laughs> was not usable. That's funny. Uh, well, anyhow, um, I spent about a year and a half there, something like that. I think it was 1959 uh, that I started the graduate program in economics at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And I spent four years there and uh, and got a degree and uh, uh, the first job that I took um, was uh, at the University of Hawaii and um, I took that job because a friend of mine, a guy who had been a year ahead of me in graduate school, who happened to be a Japanese national, uh, Yuzo Sato, uh, said, Ron, come on, we can do great things here. It's brand new. Uh, the um, the uh, U.S. State Department has just put a lot of money into the East-West Center and uh, bring uh, scholars from the East and the West together. And uh, so I said yes. And um, so we moved there and spent um, almost four years there. Wow. Cool. And then um, actually uh, uh, my younger son, Don, was born there in um, 1965. And, um, and Cal had started school. Actually, Cal went uh, to Punahou for the time that we were there, three or four years, four years, I guess it was. And then we left uh, because I had gotten an offer uh, from another guy that I had uh, done some work for when I was a graduate student. Um, that, that formed a long-range research group uh, at uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which is what it was called at that time. It's now no, no longer HCW, it's HHS. And um, so I went there and uh, And while I was working there, you know, it's interesting. I'm beginning to see how, how important, at least in my life, um, uh, personal relationships were. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm just kind of going through that. There's always, well, somebody told me. 
Yeah. Somebody I knew. It's amazing. <laughs> well, anyhow, I, um, I was working there, and then another guy, guy by the name of Rudy Penner, who also was, I think, Rudy was a year or two ahead of me at Hopkins. Uh, he was working at the Council of Economic Advisors, President of the Council of Economic Advisors, and he called me up one day and said, um, would you like to come to work here? And I said, no one asked me. <laughs> <laughs> and he started laughing. He said, well, <laughs> uh, I'm asking. Uh, uh, Herb Stein, who was then the chairman uh, of the council, uh, asked them to, you know, search around somebody to, these jobs were just for a year or two, and um, find somebody who wanted to do that work. Uh, it was kind of an interesting time. Uh, Richard Nixon was the president. This was 1972. Okay. And uh, uh, a year that will stand out in infamy, uh, to misquote Mr. Roosevelt. Um, uh, the 72 election was the re-election uh, of Richard Nixon. Three committee to re-elect uh, Nixon. He ran against George McGovern, and uh, uh, you know he. I think he won everything other than you know McGovern's house, and uh, but but because of feelings of uncertainty about the outcome, uh, Nixon and his buddies saw fit to do all the things that were associated with the Watergate crisis. And, uh, of course, that uh, was really historic, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yes. So, so uh, um, I did that for a while, and then uh, the Congressional Budget Office was starting. And some people I knew, a guy named Bob Reichauer called me and said, you want to come to work here? We're starting this. And uh, I said, yeah. So I did that. And then um, I left there and uh, went to the Treasury Department uh, which is where I got interested in certain aspects of self-economics uh, because uh, the Demo this was the Carter administration, the Democrats at that time uh, what's his name? Joe, Joe uh, Joseph uh, what's his name? He was the Secretary of HW at the time. Uh, I can't help you. They they were trying to they, they had this plan uh, to uh, uh, entirely reorganize the healthcare industry, 
And uh, so, uh, there were there, there was a great deal of economic significance to all these programs, and so the the, the um, principles involved that is the Secretary of the Treasury, Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and the Director of the Office of Management Budget uh, had a stake in all this, and uh, there was a person in each of those organizations. I was the guy in the Treasury Department who uh, wrote the memoranda that would go to up through the chain and to the president to recommend one thing or another with respect to these proposals from HGW. How interesting. And um, so um, uh, that was uh, that was the late uh, that was 70 Carter was elected in 76. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, so then uh, in 80, um, Reagan got elected. I have the years right? I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. And, uh, and I stayed at the Treasury Department. They had a There, there was a. Uh, I was a non-political person. I declined to take a political appointment. Okay. Uh, but I was able to stay because they had um, a uh, a uh, set of positions for people who were part of what was called the senior executive service, and I think that was the. That, that was uh, modeled in a way after the so-called British civil service. Uh, you know, people who who were non-political, who um, who who did their job uh, and were necessary uh, to keep the government running, no matter who the prime minister was okay. or who the administration was. And uh, that's where I was fortunate enough to work for Jim Baker mm. when he was secretary of the treasury. Interesting. And uh, um, make no mistake about it, Baker was a real Republican and continues to be to this day. Okay. Uh, but he was um, a remarkable person by my, by my life. Uh, very bright, uh, very tough, very honest, very honorable. And uh, so um, I did that uh, until 
um, 1986. 1986, I decided I was going to go to law school. Okay, so you were in politics for, not in politics exactly, but Treasury Department. I was not in the political arena at all. I just did. Government then. I just did economics. Okay. But for the government. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I I had done the, I had done the same thing uh, when I worked at HCW. I had done the same thing when I worked at the Council of Economic Advisors. I had done the same thing when I worked at the Congressional Budget Office. I didn't get on it. There were substantive problems that uh, required people to purport to <laughs> provide solutions to. Okay, got and it. I won't claim. I won't claim that I ever uh, did anything uh, wonderful or even very good, but I did it to the best of my ability, and I wasn't interested in political activity. Okay. How old were you when you applied to law school, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, well, we can figure it out. I was born in 1931, and so in uh, 1986, I, I went to law school first in 1987, uh, so that's 56. Okay. 56 Got it. First went to law school. Okay. Interesting. And uh, I went to UCLA. Mm. And um, uh, I, I was older than all but, I think, three of the faculty. <laughs> Certainly all of the students. <laughs> How was that? And um, well, it was interesting. I had a few friends, um, and I, they were younger than my children. And, <laughs> uh, but for the most part, you know, those kids just—I was like furniture. I mean, you know, they—they they didn't pay any attention to me. They thought they as well not have been around. Hmm. Um. But in any event, so so uh, I went to law school and uh, spent three years and got out and, and started practicing law and and uh, and I got out. I was just about sixty and uh, and uh, I had met Roseanne and Roseanne and I. Formed an alliance and uh, got married. Uh, you know Kara. I do know Kara. I love our Kara. daughter. Yes, I love Kara. Yeah, my daughter. So, um, that's, um, as you can see, I I I did a lot of pivoting mm-hmm. and a lot a lot of striving. Uh, and maybe I even thrived. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I think then, you thrived. You're, I mean, no one will ever guess how old you were when they met you. So, I mean, you just really, 
you, you just have a lot of things you're interested in and it really comes through. So anyhow, um, when I, I'm, I'm not, I was 90 in April and, um, uh, about three years ago, uh, I pretty much, well, I stopped, you know, doing any work for clients. Okay. Three years ago. All right. Or, yeah. Something like that. Uh, Roseanne, uh, Roseanne has this, uh, a business. Uh, providing perfusion services to uh, Memorial Hospital. She had, at one point, two partners. They both retired. And um, because they retired and uh, because of certain uh, changes that were taking place uh, politically, uh, in the state of California, mainly having to do with the relationship with employers and uh, contractors, that all of that uh, mess. Uh, uh, there was work for me to do to help Rosanna out, and I've done that for the last several years. Um, and uh, We've managed to remain married through all of that. So I'd say success on that basis alone, it's, uh, it's satisfactory. Um, so um, that uh, I don't know about retirement. Um, let's see, Pacific Ridge. Um, uh, we started working on that. In about 2003, I think. Right. That's a school, for those of you who are listening. That's a uh, middle school and high school that Ron Hoffman was instrumental in starting. So, we opened it, I think, in 2007. Yes. I I would have to look it up. Yeah. I can't remember. But I was not retired at that time. Uh, That was just something that I did um, as uh, as uh, as a bit of work that uh, I was just driven to do internally. And um, I was gratifying to to help put that school on the map. It had a number of, uh, I think, interesting features. Uh, two of them that were particularly uh, important to me. Uh, one was the idea of integrated classrooms. Uh, the classes that, that is the subject matter was integrated. And the second was uh, um, the uh, use of seminar type classrooms. Um, those were two things that I had taken with me from 
my own educational experience. Okay. were very useful. And uh, so we um, instituted those. Uh, and, uh, you know, as time has gone on, I found it necessary to spend more and more time uh, uh, just keeping body and soul together. I mean, stuff wears out. Yeah. And uh, you, you gotta you, you gotta do a fair amount of work to, to stay even. Not that you can ever stay even. <laughs> it's, it's a losing cause, but not a lost cause. <laughs> and point. so I spend a fair amount of time doing that. And um, and then uh, beginning um, in about 2015, uh, I uh, started to get interested in politics. Uh, mainly because it seemed to me that things were uh, beginning to go uh, very far south. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, so I spent uh, a fair amount of time doing one thing or another at Recalker. Um, and in particular, um, this was, uh, I guess, 2018. Um, yeah, that was the year that that uh, uh, I began to work uh, toward the election of uh, Mike Levin um, from the 49th Congressional District. He okay. Not, I, I don't live in this district. But, uh, he was uh, running to build a I thought that was important. Uh, once I got it, uh, to see a bit of Levin, I said to myself, he's a good one. And uh, he's worth putting a lot of time and energy into. And uh, so he got elected and got reelected. And uh, he's in the process of running again it will work on that campaign also. So, so anyhow, um, uh, that's kind of it as far as pivoting and striving and driving. I have had a, uh, what I think is a Uh, a very interesting opportunity is because I did things late, but not too late, I had a particular vantage point that I might not have had in the while. Okay, so you and see your value in that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and not just with respect to the kind of work I've done. I mean, you know, I've, I've had two marriages and, um, and I have two children. 
and the children are two different. The boys are one generation. Uh, my older son is 63. My younger son is 56. Sarah is 22. Mm. Our daughter. Yeah. And and uh, and so um, you know the opportunity to have two uh, rounds. I think is uh, uh, two two rounds. Give one a interesting perspective. At least one that has been uh, very, very satisfying to me in that way. Um, maybe another way to say this is that um, you have an opportunity to at least try to remedy uh, some of the errors you've made. And uh, so that's pretty much it. So you can remedy some errors, but don't you think you can take some stuff with you that you know you did right, that did really well, and you can still apply that again? Like, this was a successful recipe right here. I can apply this again. Well, well this is going to be if good. You're suggesting, if you're suggesting that I get married a third time <laughs> and have a third set of kids, the answer is not on your life. You know? <laughs> no, that's not what I mean at all. But, I mean, you know, it's not like your life up to – the second time around of everything you've done is a failure. You've done a lot of stuff, right? No, no, It's no, just you've no, been able no, to take that and opposite. use it, so it's really neat. Just, just, just the opposite. No, it's just those kinds of things. It, uh, you might have done differently, better. Um, you do have another shot. Yeah, it's pretty and cool. It's fortunate. It's fortunate to have that. Well, let me ask you because you've kept moving. Yeah. You know, you keep you keep kind of reinventing yourself. And well, now I'm needed here, so I go do this, and then uh, and there's opportunity here, and I go take that. You've never really stopped, and so you know, there's kind of this myth or this cliche that you retire at the age of 65, and and then you try and figure out what you're going to do. But you you've never really stopped. You kept moving, and so I mean. To look at you, I obviously I can't be inside your head, but to look at you, you're a healthy guy. You're really interested in everything. You're always staying relevant. Um, do you feel that that is a formula that people should follow when they're retiring? Yeah, well, um, far be it for me to suggest that other people do anything uh, at all. And certainly <laughs> not something... Uh, that uh, is a recipe based on what I thought. All, all I can say to you is, is that uh, uh, what I said, and, and, I'll, and I'll just put it this way. Okay. Um, uh, I have had a number of conversations with my daughter, Sarah, over the years. And um, just in some uh, what I have said to her is, Sarah, you're a serious person. Follow your nose. And, uh, and I think she does. Mm -hmm. And I would say that 
fortunately, I have been a kind of serious person, and I have kind of followed my nose. Um, and it's not um, um, well. I would contrast myself with people who have pretty firmly in mind uh, what they want to do. I mean, you, you know, uh, there's kind of a, 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 a cliche question that people ask, are, uh, an interviewer will ask an interviewee in a, in a job interview, where you want to be in five years, yeah. where you want to be in ten. And I don't have any idea. Well, at this stage, my answer is I'd like to be on the right side of the dirt. But <laughs> other than that, but I've never thought about uh, some, you know, I've had ideas and, and uh, moved along towards um, accomplishing some goal. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that I just lead my life in a random fashion. But uh, maybe the thing is uh, my particular personality enables me to be flexible. Maybe that's the way. Yeah. And, and so I would say if, you know, if you're comfortable uh, with that uh, go with it. Maybe the thing to say is go with whatever you're comfortable with. Maybe that's the point. Maybe try to understand what you're comfortable with. Yeah, I think maybe that's it. Um, I know that uh, uh, I've had conversations uh, with uh, with people who are important to me in my life. Um, that revolved around a question. Uh, you know, what, what should I do? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and this same question arises in the small and in the large. Uh, the question arises uh, with respect to things that are not very important, like uh, uh, where should I go on vacation uh, or something that is very important, uh, uh, such as uh, who, who, who should I marry. And, and, uh, and I... When I'm asked, when I'm asked for an opinion about such a thing, uh, I conclude the really most important thing is to try to figure out what you want. Okay. That seems to be more important than how to get there. What do you want? How can you, how can you figure out what you would want? What you do want? Yeah. It's not easy for people. 
Yeah. But it's valuable. So anyhow, that's a kind of long, meandering, boring recitation. And I don't know what the hell you're going to do with this. <laughs> it was not boring at all. And there was a lot of valuable lessons in everything that you shared. And your whole life has been an example of why it's important to network, why it's important to make friends, and, and why it's important to stay open to opportunities because that's what you always have been. Well, you're, you know, you got your ear to the ground, you're following your nose, as you put it. And someone says, Oh, we got this. And okay, let's go because you were flexible. I mean, it just seems like you've, you've, led a really well-lived life. You've really done it well, and you haven't stopped, and it seems like that has served you well. Well, we'll see. <laughs> okay, well, so far, so far you've led a good life. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, and I think, um, you know, I don't know your other kids. I know Kara is a person that when I met her, I just thought, here's a person who's out to change the world. And she's just always seems like she came here to serve and um, from the time that I met her in middle school. So she's just a really amazing person, obviously a product of you and Roseanne and your personalities. And you both seem like you're here to serve and Kara is also as well. So it seems like you're doing a good job to me so far. You know, who knows what the future holds? Maybe maybe you'll go off the rails, but it seems like overall you're doing a really great job at being a human being, Ron. So. I really appreciate well, your time you. and your contribution. Off the record, let me just tell you something that you probably know already. Uh, Kara, Roseanne, and I are big fans of Jace. Yeah, my big son Jace, yeah. He's a great guy. So, anyhow, we uh, are very happy to know him. Yeah, no, it's a good alliance here. We appreciate knowing you. So... But thank you for your time. I, I'm anxious to share this with everybody because I think you're a great role model for how to live. And especially in retirement. Right. I think even though you haven't actually ever retired, I guess till maybe three years ago you retired, but uh, I think you're a great role model for how to do it. So I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. All right. Take care. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pivot and Thrive. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you know anybody who you think would be a great subject for this podcast, please have them contact me. They can go to my website, retirementpurposecoach.com. And at the bottom of that front page, there is a contact section and they can just reach me right there. I'd love to hear from them. I am a certified retirement coach, so if you need any help from me with your retirement so that you have your own success story, you can contact me there as well. I'd like to thank Bokuwa and Wizzy2K for the use of their song, Will You Stay With Me? I have the link to that song in the show notes. Have an excellent rest of your day, whatever it is that you're doing. I hope it's purposeful. You'll enjoy your life so much better if that's your focus. Bye for now.